everybody. Hey, one additional announcement. A wonderful young couple grew up in the church. They're now missionaries in Pakistan. Niskavitz is the last name. Ben and Christy. You know, do you know them? I knew Ben when he was a little kid across the street getting in trouble in student ministry. And he grew up to be a man of God, married a godly woman. They have four children. They went all the way from here, their comfort zone. They learned the language, embraced the Pakistani culture, and there they minister. Anyway, they're back on furlough. They need a place to stay and some transportation. We have been able to provide for them in years past, and so far we're falling short. That's not good. They're really counting the cost. This is their home church. We've got to provide. If you know of something, a place for them to be able to stay, family of six, um, only semi-destructive. <laughs> no, they're good people, and they don't steal anymore. They used to, but they, no, they got over that. I'm telling you, you'd be safe. We know them. We could vouch for them. Uh, two parents and their, uh, what'd you say? Yeah, it, it's, uh, I think it's for six months. It's, it's for, even if you have a, know of a rental property, we, we can try to come up with the resources to provide for them. What would you all say? Rex, I'm not talking to you. Because, well, listen, apart from the fact that you would be there, it sounds attractive. <laughs> I'm just let's be honest. That's Rex right there. Listen, that may work. What I was going to say, if you know of possibilities like that, can, can you communicate it to the missions department? Our missions pastor is Jonathan Morrison. By the way, he and I are leaving tomorrow. We're going to Mexico City for a few days to do a little survey on some unreached people groups there. It's just two hours away from good old Houston. We hop on a plane, be very cost-effective outreach. So we're going to go check it out uh, um, tomorrow. I hear they have good Mexican food there. (laughs) Anyway, um, you can call Jonathan Morrison or his uh, assistant in the office, Andrea Parker. Just call the church, ask for the missions office, and any possibilities you have, if you could relay them, then we will follow up and see if it, it's a workable solution for them. All right, thanks for doing that. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 21 today, 2 Samuel 21. Soon we will finish 2 Samuel. Where we go hereafter, we haven't decided. It'll be a New Testament book because I want to give you Gentile people a break. So we'll be in the New Testament somewhere. We'll figure it out. We used to put it up to class vote, and then we realized, nah, we prefer dictatorship over democracy. So we just make a decision and let you know. But it'll be the Bible. So for today, chapter 21, look, now there was a famine in the days of David. Tells you how long, three years. There gets to be famine in the Middle East when there's no rain. And that's probably the case, no rain. And David sought the presence of the Lord. That's a good idea. He said, this is one for God. (laughs) We can't deal with this three years. So he prays to Almighty God. God answers and says, it's for Saul. Or it is due to Saul and his bloody house. Because he put the Gibeonites to death. David got an explanation. Now be careful here. Lest you think... Every catastrophe, disease, or natural disaster is directly due to someone's sin. That is not always the case. Now, look, everything is due to sin. Since Genesis chapter 3, we can call it original sin. 
The origination of the trouble with the world is due to us. We sinned. Our forebears did in Genesis 3, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But the proximate cause of a lot that we face is not due to sin. For instance, would you have the audacity to look to someone struggling with cancer in the eye and say, this is yours because you have sinned? Some of you would. Those are good people who are oversimplifying the complexities both of the Bible and of human behavior. Yes, sin got us into the jam we're in, but you cannot trace every uh, affliction, natural disaster, personal emotional struggle. You cannot uh, connect them unduly with one's proximate sin. If you do that, the sufferer will now get the double whammy of being afflicted and also be filled with guilt and shame. Now, the solution to this particular issue is, I try to do this. If I see someone struggling, I ask them, are you aware of any pattern of sin in your life? I just go for it right away. And if it's ruled out, then we move on. And we just say, in the sovereignty of God, he allowed this to happen, and I don't know what the answer is, but we'll press, we'll press on. Now, if the answer is yes, there's sin in my life, I don't go further. I just say, why don't you confess it? Turn from it. Let it be covered by the blood of Jesus, and let's get on with things. Anyway, this particular catastrophe, God said, is due to the specific wrongdoing of a specific guy named Saul, who David replaced. What is the sin? He sought to put the Gibeonites to death. So what's up with that? Well, the Gibeonites are non-Israelites. They were the indigenous people of the land before Israel got there. They are a group of the umbrella group known as the Canaanites. Hence, the land was called the land of Canaan. In Canaan, there were various people groups. Uh, this is one. You've heard of the Hevites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Perizz- you know, all these ites, termites. Uh, those are all subgroups of the Canaanites, indigenous people in the land. Joshua is commanded by God Cross the Jordan River. They would be going from the east side of the Jordan River to the west, cross over and take the land. That's what God said. Now, that troubles our sensibilities today because we think we're more just than God. Well, if you think that, you can argue with him. One thing you cannot argue with is the fact that God chose to give that parcel land to the Israelites. You can argue the fairness of it, the justice of it, all the rest. But you can't argue the factual nature of it. It all began in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram, that was his name then, and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And that's been repeated uh, manifold times in Old and New Testament. Anyway, Joshua does what he's supposed to do. The first city they come to in the land of Canaan is Jericho, walled city. Uh, The Israelites are not used to dealing with walls. They were a slave people for 400 plus years. They don't know how to deal with this. No problemo. God gives them the victory. You know about Jericho. After Jericho, the next city assaulted is Ai. Same fate. Israel takes over Ai. Now the Gibeonites are not stupid. They know we're next. So they come up with a stratagem, which is quite brilliant. Uh, They... Uh, fraudulently communicate to Joshua, we're not from this place. We're from a far place. And so they attire themselves with the kind of clothing you would associate with someone who's come from a long distance, worn out sandals and all the like. They say, we're not from here. 
we're from a far place. Therefore, you can make a peace covenant with us. We wish that you would. Joshua, based on appearances, does. By the way, it's not a good basis of decision-making to make your decisions on the basis of appearances. Be careful. Do you know some people vote for folks running for political office on the basis of how they look and how they speak? You know, you talk to someone, why did you, I'm just curious, you voted for so-and-so, why did you vote for so-and-so? I just like the way he speaks. You have any idea what he stands for, what he believes? Folks, I hope we go deeper. Uh, you vote for who you want. It's a free country, but uh, be careful about decisions based upon, based upon surface impressions. You remember Ted Bundy? Bundy? I mean, he had a very good impression. You'd want your daughter to marry him. And then find out he lopped off her head and put it in a freezer. <sighs> Folks, do you think devilish people look it? <laughs> it's the beautiful side of evil. They, they look good. Be careful. Be careful. Anyway, uh, they make a decision based on appearances, but now they're stuck with it. They signed a peace treaty, and soon thereafter, Joshua realizes he's been duped, but uh, word is a word. Well, not anymore. But it was then. And so even though he was led into this fraudulently, deceptively, wrongfully, and all the rest, too bad. It's a covenant he signed off on. And so the Gibeonites were allowed to live, and they became ewers of wood and carriers of water for the temple service. What does Saul do? In total disregard of this covenant, he decides to kill them. He starts off by killing some. Now, we don't have a record of it in the Bible. That doesn't mean it doesn't take place because this verse is telling us that's what he did. We just don't have a place where it's recorded. It's not there. But it, it, it took place. We're told about it right here in verse 1. This is what Saul sought to do. Why? Well, because God told him to deal with the Philistines, but the Philistines had iron chariots and iron weaponry. <laughs> Slave people didn't have this. So Saul took the path of least resistance. I can beat up on the Gibeonites. They got nothing. I think that's why he did it. He started off killing a few, but his intent was genocide, the extermination of an entire people group. In violation of the covenant of peace Joshua made with them, well, God doesn't take kindly to this. That Why? Because God takes seriously our words, even though we may not. Especially the words of his people and especially the words of nations. A promise was made. A promise must be kept. The covenant was entered into The covenant terms must be obeyed. Can I caution you who are thinking about getting married? If there's any way you can keep from doing it, don't do it. Because once you done do it, there is no plan B. You're in it irreversibly. That's the way it is. I understand things happen, but it's not supposed to. It's not supposed to. Now, the fact that God takes our words and covenant vows so seriously ought to encourage us because if he keeps, if he takes seriously our word to one another, that means he takes even more seriously his word to us. I read promises in the Bible and I can go to the bank on it (laughs) because I know God takes seriously his word. He expects his people to do it as well. Don't make promises you can't keep. Hey, don't say to someone, I'll pray for you. Unless you intend to, you just broke your vow. A good thing to do when you say that to someone, I'll pray for you. If you think, well, the week's going to be real busy, you may forget. Pray for them right there. Now, if you want to pray for them, you just say, hey, I'm concerned about your deal, but I'm too busy to pray for you. 
Uh, you just be honest. How about this? Hey, I'll call you. We'll do lunch. But don't be saying that unless you mean it. Why don't you just say, you know, you got in my way. I got a you know, social protocol. I got to say some nice stuff to you. To be honest with you, I don't want to have lunch with you. I may end up having to pay. And I frankly don't like you that much. You just say something like that. That would be more palatable than, hey, I'll call you sometime. Well, don't be saying that. God takes words seriously. Anyway, uh, that's what happens here. Now, you, want, you know what's interesting? The covenant Joshua made with this people group, the Gibeonites, was 400 years before the time of Saul and David. I'm sure Saul said, who remembers? It's old. Well, God remembers. <laughs> he takes our words seriously. And I'll bet you the people were thinking, oh, that, that was a sin against the Gibeonites, but yeah, God hasn't done anything about it. Therefore, forget it. Well, the reason why God doesn't immediately rush in to judge specific sin in all cases is that he gives the sinner and the nation who sins a chance to repent. But some people confuse the patience with God with the indifference of God to sin. Oh, no, he's not indifferent about it at all. He's holy. He's untainted by sin. He's never done it. He takes it quite seriously. Eventually, the sinner or the nation will be judged for sin unless it's confessed, repented of, and put under the blood. And then, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, that wasn't the case over here. And so here's what happens, verse 2. The king, David, called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them. That's the covenant I mentioned to you that took place in Joshua 9. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. Zeal, passion is good, unless it's unbridled by Scripture. Then you become a fanatic. The world is filled with religious fanatics who will kill you. If you don't subscribe to their belief system, that's passion gone awry. I think that was the case with Saul. Notice it says his zeal for Judah and Israel, right? It doesn't say for God. You should have unbridled, unrestrained zeal for God, but for nobody and nothing else. Do you know what happened here? Uh, Saul's patriotism was misguided. Look, zeal for Judah and Israel. Now, I'll say something to you. I'm an American. I was born here. I'm glad. I pay taxes grudgingly, but I do. Uh, I vote. Um, I served in two branches of the service. I got thrown out of one. And uh, I got an honorable discharge. It's in a frame. Does that mean something to me? I still have my uniform. I cannot fit into it, but I have it. I have a son who served in the Airborne in Afghanistan. It took its toll on him to this day. We would do it again. But I'm not proud to be an American. Forgive me. Proud? I didn't have anything to do with it. I'm grateful to God that he let me be born in a place. That's a pretty darn good place. Thoroughly imperfect. But it's a good place. I'm not trying to exercise another option. Don't misunderstand. But I don't want my patriotic zeal to be so much that I'm forgetting 
what my real mission is, is to represent the king, not a political party, not a president. There's no president of any party who can save me from my sin, nor you. I don't really want to mix it up about that stuff. I'd rather mix it up about Jesus. He matters. I'm a citizen of America for a little while, but my real citizenship is in heaven. Don't let people equate biblical Christianity with being a member of a certain political party. I want them to equate Christianity with affiliation with Christ. Be careful. Otherwise, your zeal will be misdirected. Vote for who you want. Affiliate with who you want. But your allegiance must be to Jesus. I can conceive of times when I'm going to have to say no to the government. I'm on good biblical footing. It's happened before. I wouldn't burn down buildings or be disrespectful. If I had to, I'd take my hits. But there are certain things the government may require me to do that God won't have me do. Then the Bible says you must obey God rather than man. Misdirected zeal says, oh, no, no, America, you know, one way or the other. What? America as good as it is, it's not, this is not God's kingdom. Are you aware of that? I know people associate with America with the promised land. What? This is not the promised land. This is a democracy. It's really great. I like this form of government. Everything's cool. Don't misunderstand. I want good things to happen here. I defend the country. I would do it again. But I belong to Jesus. I don't belong to the Republican Party. Belong to who you want. Don't misunderstand. Don't misunderstand. Make the best decisions you, you want to. That's the beauty of being here. But I don't want to have a litmus test of your Christianity on the basis of who you voted for. The litmus test is, are you abiding in Christ? Anyway, I think Saul's zeal went crazy, and he got in big trouble. He put nationalism ahead of the Lord. That's my point. That's what he did. I do not think an American is better than a citizen of another country. I'm going to Mexico tomorrow. I think we have it better here than many citizens of Mexico but I don't think I'm better than any citizen of Mexico. I want to bring Jesus. I don't want to bring Americanism. (laughs) Americanism can't save anybody. Jesus can save people. You understand what I mean? So anyway, I think Saul blew it. Well, he did. So here's what happens. Verse 3, David said to the Gibeonites, what should I do for you? Wow. David did a lot of stuff wrong. This is right. He's taking the initiative. What should I do for you? How can I make atonement? that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord. And the Gibeonites said, we have no concern for silver or gold. I want to tell you, they really take the high road. They don't want money. Nor did they say, is it for us to put any man to death? Indiscriminately, we don't want to kill Israelites because just because the Israelite king sought to kill us. They're quite virtuous people, it seems to me. David says, well, then I'll do whatever you say. And so they said in verse 5 to the king, well, the man who consumed us, That's Saul, and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within any border of Israel. Let seven men of his sons be given to us. Why seven? Well, they knew that seven was the number of completion. Seven in the Bible represents the fullness of any issue at hand. Seven would be the fullness of the atoning price to be paid for Saul's sinful behavior. 
And then, so they ask for seven men of his sons. But the Hebrew word for sons also involves grandsons. They're looking for direct descendants of Saul, sons and or grandsons. Give us seven and we'll hang them. Oh, boy. We'll do it before the Lord. What? Yeah, God's hand is in this. The sin must be atoned for. We'll do it in Gibeah. That's where Saul's from. And they recognize Saul is the chosen of the Lord. Well, the king, David, said to them, I'll I'll do it. I will give them. Now you say, David, why'd you do something like this? Because the Bible, Deuteronomy 24, 16, says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor sons put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. Therefore, why should Saul's descendants, his sons and grandsons, be penalized? Well, that Deuteronomy passage is for personal criminal behavior. So if you murder someone, you pay the penalty for it. Here, it's a national crime. It's a crime against another people group, and therefore there must be a public demonstration of God's righteous indignation with this, and therefore Saul's descendants are involved also. Do you think Saul was going up against the Gibeonites alone? Good night. He probably teamed up with his uh, family members, and so they are culpable as well. So... uh, The Gibeonites are actually taking the high road, though this may appear to be savage. They're not after money nor an eye for an eye. No. They're after an atoning sacrifice for the sin, which is victimizing the entire land. And so David, in verse 7, spares Mephibosheth. See, he's the son of Jonathan. Jonathan is the son of Saul. Mephibosheth would have been the most likely guy to get the axe first. He's the direct descendant of Saul. But David made a promise to Saul's son, Jonathan, David's close friend. David said, don't worry, I'll take care of this guy. He had like a physical ailment, you know, this kind of thing, and And David, you know, here's the deal. David made a promise, and David doesn't want to deal with the broken promise at hand by breaking another promise. You know what I mean? So uh, he spares Mephibosheth. Verse 8, so the king took the two sons of Rizpah. You'll see it said soon, she's Saul's concubine. Two sons, their names are there, Armani and look, Mephibosheth. Ah, not the same one, a different one. Her two sons and five sons of Merab, who she, daughter of Saul, total of seven. David, verse 9, gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them before the Lord. The seven fell together. And they were put to death in the first days of harvest, beginning of barley harvest. That's April. It goes for about five to six months to October. Little or no rain during that period of time. The method of death chosen is significant here. See the word hang, it's not exactly the way we think it. It's likely they were executed and then put on public display. Executed by, oftentimes they were thrown off of an elevated area to a lower area. They were thrown to their death. Then they would be hung, you know how? On a tree. Or on a cross. To deter similar crimes. Public display. This is very significant because it says in Deuteronomy 21:23, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. How did the Lord die? Not some antiseptic electric chair, public humiliation. 
Look, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, where? In the very Deuteronomy passage I just quoted for you, it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The Lord Jesus submitted to the most humiliating, painful, excruciating form of capital punishment known to humankind. That's what he did for people like you and me. Verse 10, and Rizpah took sackcloth, spread it for herself on the rock from beginning of the harvest till it rained. I told you it doesn't rain during the barley harvest, but it's possible that God sent rain earlier, contingent on the repentance of the people for their sin. She spread out sackcloth on an ash, uh, on a rock. Why'd she do that? Uh, She allowed night of the birds of the sky to rest on them, the bodies of the deceased by day, nor beast of the field by night. Here's a grieving mama. Breaks your heart. Can you imagine? She just spread herself on the rock. For how long, we don't know. Their bodies were not taken down until it rained. She wanted to fight off birds and predators at night. was grievous. Hey, if you want to write a book, write a book on the great women of the Bible, would you? Last week we spoke of one. We don't even know her name. She intervened on behalf of a whole city and saved it. All she had to do is have a guy's head cut off. Remember? Throw it over the wall. One guy in place of the whole city. We don't know her name. Here we have another, I think, woman of virtue, Rizpah, whoever she is. We don't know. Anyway, that's what she does. And her effect is contagious. Therefore, verse 11, when it was told David what Rizpah, concubine of Saul, had done, here's what David did. In light of her example, he went and he took the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from Beit Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them. What happened years before, uh, Saul dies in battle against the Philistines, so do his sons, of which one was Jonathan. The Philistines decapitate them, impale their bodies on a wall, shame them. A number of us here have been to Beit Shan, where this actually happened. At night, under cover of darkness, a people group from across the Jordan, Israelites called the people of Jabesh Gilead, at personal risk, came, took the bodies off of the walls of Beit Shan, carried them back over the Jordan River to give them a fit burial. Time has gone by. David, moved by this lady's grief and interest in showing respect to the deceased, had Saul's bones and Jonathan's brought back. And what happened to him? Verse 13, they were gathered together and they were buried um, in the country of Benjamin in the grave of Kish, Saul's father. That's what happened. Now, the last part of the text is interesting and I'll spend the next few minutes on it. And then if we do things right here, we'll be getting out before the worship service. Isn't that good? And so you'll be able to get out of the parking lot nicely. Thanks. That was the most enthusiastic response I've heard in a long time. So, and you'll be able to get to Luby's before everybody else. Verse 15. Now, when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, man, these guys do not go away. They are like uh, roaches. You just cannot get rid of them. They are always cropping up. So there's war with them again. And David went down and his servants with him as they fought against the Philistines. And note this, 
David, the text says, became weary. We have never read that of David, the seasoned military leader, giant killing, uh, marvelous leader of Israel. We've never read this. David became weary. Do you know why we never read it? Because he never was. (laughs) Well, why is he now? Because he's older. You can fight it all you want. That's what happens, the aging process. It's very interesting. Your mind still tells you you can do what you used to do, but you can't do what you used to do. I had to replace air conditioning filters the other day, one requiring me getting up on a ladder. No problem. My mind tells me I can do the ladder thing. Yeah, but my body doesn't have the balance equilibrium it used to do. No, people with this color hair and ladders are not a good partnership. We don't want to do it. Calvin, sometimes I think I could still play basketball. We have a challenge match going on here. That's my friend. He thinks he can take me, but I'm from New York. He cannot take me. My mind says, I still got the shot. I got nothing. Not only can I not play, I can barely see it, the game played on TV. So it's just that we just got to face it. David, because of the aging process, had become weary. And so, verse 16, a guy named Ishbi Ben-Nob, who was among the descendants of the giant. Who do you think that might be a reference to? Goliath apparently had giant-sized relatives. This guy sees an opportunity. In fact, the weight of his spear was 300 shekels of bronze. It's seven and a half pounds. He was guarded with a new weapon, a sword. He intended to kill David. He saw the vulnerability of the great leader of Israel, and he saw an opportunity to run him through and end the story on a sad, tragic note. If a soldier dies in battle, it's a tragedy. If the commanding general dies, it's crisis. In fact, anyone in war knows try to take out the high-ranking officers. One time I was in the field on field duty, and I was with our CO, our commanding officer. He was a full bird colonel. That means they were eagles over here. But in the field, you wear what's called subdued rank, not silver. It shows up. It's black on your uniform. I'm walking right alongside the CO, and a younger soldier comes over and respectfully salutes him, which you're supposed to do. You salute a high-ranking officer. You do this thing, but not in the field. And the CO uh, really jacked up this young guy. He said, you know, you just gave me up. If there's an enemy sniper, he's not going to shoot at the guy saluting. He's going to take out the guy who's been saluted. Because the enemy knows you take out one of those guys, you'll cause great uh, despair amongst the rest of the army. They have to see their leader in battle doing well. If he goes down unceremonially in a bad way, it can affect the morale of everybody. And so Ishi Benab sees an opportunity. But, verse 17, Abishai... The son of Zeruiah helped him, not the Philistine. He helped David and struck the Philistine and killed him. Wow, that's a good thing. One of David's staff 
had to come to his defense because David was weary in the battle. David could not go out after giant-sized challenges anymore. He thought he could, but he could not. In fact, he became a liability in combat because the soldiers had to prop him up, defend him, cover for him, defend him. When that happens, the leader has stayed too long. That's just the way it is. And I want to know how many more times does one of David's inner circle of confidants have to prop him up? How many more opportunities will he go out and battle and be weary in the field and need to be propped up, sustained, and protected? It's a terrible distraction from the battle. Anyway, this happens and more. Verse 17, part 2. Then the men of David swore to him. Men of David, not enemies, not adversaries, not those vying for his position. Those who loved him, served with him, fought for him, were willing to die for him. The men of David swore to him saying, as respectfully as they could, but as assertively as they must, you shall not go out again with us in battle so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. What does that mean? They were referring to David as the lamp of Israel. God is the light, but God shed his light abroad in Israel through this luminary, the giant killing King David. But they're concerned that the light will be extinguished in a horrific way. They don't want David the lamp of God, to end his legacy in defeat. They want him to go out at the top of his game. They say, you can't go out, therefore, to battle with us anymore now. Can you imagine how difficult a word this must have been for David to hear? (gasps) My goodness. David fought Goliath and won and defeated other giants. However, I think for David and other leaders... The biggest, most giant-sized challenge they face is to know when to step down. I sympathize. It's a struggle, and many don't time it rightly. In this case, they are lovingly telling David, you must step down, you must step away. I think David responded quite heroically. He did. If he didn't, He would have ended his magnificent career on a very sour note. And so David had passed his peak and had been told he could no longer lead out in battle. This is no longer purpose for David. No way. Does a minister, does a Christian ever retire from serving God? Never until he takes us home and then we serve him without fatigue and with purity of motive throughout eternity. But there's a time for retooling in one's ministry so as to do something else, to serve as the key leader. The one who faced giants on Israel's behalf is one thing he could not do, but he can serve in manifold other ways as well. Now, for many leaders who stay in the lead too long, they do so, in my opinion, because... They can't imagine that anyone could take their place. They're concerned, and they're also arrogant at the same time. David might have thought, 
if I step down, will there be any other giant killer in Israel? Well, let's just see. Verse 18. Now it came about after this that there was war again with the Philistines at Gob, and Sibachai the Hushatite struck down a guy named Saph, who was among the descendants of the giant. Apparently the giant had other giant-sized kids who challenged Israel, and in this case, somebody else was a giant killer because God has never been and never will be limited to one person to get the job done. Never. Verse 19, there was war with the Philistines again at Gob, and a guy named Elchanan, son of Jireh Oregim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath, different Goliath, but also a big Goliath, Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And so another giant opposing, taunting Israel goes down, but not at the hands of David, at the hands of one of David's men. Verse 20, there was war at Goth again, uh, where there was a man of great stature. Look at this guy. Six fingers, he could palm that basketball on each hand. Six toes on each foot. In case you can't do the math, it's done for us. 24 appendages. Whoa. And he also had been born to the giant when he defied Israel. Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. Yeah, the leader... Uh, thinks, yeah, but nobody could do it like me. Don't limit God. The work never comes to an end, though the worker may. It goes on, verse 22. These four were born to the giant in Goth, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. One of the greatest testimonies for the legacy of David is that he left behind other giant killers. The test of a leader's ministry is what happens when he steps down. If the leader has left behind no other giant killers, he has not led well. The efficacy or value of a leader's leadership is who's prepared to carry on the legacy. If a leader says, nobody but me, my core values will dissipate when I'm gone, then that leader has admitted to failing as a leader. If that leader's core values have not been inculcated by those who have followed the leader, then that leader has failed. I think David stepped down in the most heroic way he possibly could, though I know it must have been a very difficult thing for him to do. David produced giant killers. They saw David's faith and they saw his devotion and they saw his commitment and they saw his trust. The mark of a good leader is to prepare his people and staff to go after the next set of giants. If a leader has failed to do that, the leader has really failed. Someone said it is better to go out with a shout of triumph than with a whimper of defeat. David's men loved him enough such that they did not want him to go out with a whimper of defeat. That is an act of love. David couldn't see it. They had to bring it to his attention. You're wearying in battle. You cannot do it anymore. Now, God will continue to raise up leaders 
when the leaders of the previous generation must pass from the scene. If you don't think that, then you are worshiping the leader way too much. I know when Moses ended, things didn't end because there was Joshua. I know when Elijah ended, things didn't end because there was Elisha. I know when Paul ended, things didn't end because there was Timothy. This is God's way. An army, a church, has to let go of its giant-sized, giant-killing leader when the time is right. Knowing the legacy of that giant killer has been evidenced by the fact that he's left his staff and people with all that they need to continue to face the giants ahead. Uh, David's legacy lay, in my opinion, not only in what he accomplished, but also in what he left behind. He left behind a people prepared for victory. That's the mark of a good leader, a people prepared for victory. And the leader must step down and step away at the right, at the right time. Notice uh, those who, like David, slew giants, used different weaponry. What did David use? Slingshot, stones. They used different weaponry. Why? When you look for the successor of a giant-killing leader, some groups are prone to find someone like him. Not only can you not, but you should not. Because the giants that organization faces at the end of a great leader's tenure are entirely different than he faced. And so it requires a leader with an entirely different skill set. Hopefully the same moral, ethical godly character, hopefully still a man of faith and uh, adherence to scripture and love for the flock. I got all that. But to look for someone like an esteemed, devoted, giant-killing leader is an exercise in futility. God won't honor it. You look for someone who can use new weapons because the giants an organization faces are different than the giants faced by its previous leader. Yes, Daniel. Some people think, and this is what David did, out of the brook of Elah. Were we there, Daniel? I don't remember if we went. And Elah, anyway, there was a brook, and David extracted from it five stones. Remember that? It only took one to deal with Goliath. Some people say, but I think it's just speculation. The other four were for his other kids if they messed with him. (laughs) Some people say that. I don't know. Listen, uh, let's stop here. Let me invite you to make good application from all of Scripture, including what we just spoke about. Whatever application God, the Holy Spirit, lays on you. All I know is uh, one of the things Brother Chuck and I do in spite of our flaws is we don't skip over Scripture. We deal with whatever is in there, and as a result, therefore, we have to say to you oftentimes, I don't know what it means. I don't get it. But this is the full counsel of God. We don't have a right to skip it. This one landed on me. So if you think I have some hidden agenda, I do not. I just treated the text 
the way we always treat the text. If the text fits our situation, then try it on for size. That's all I'm saying. Lord Jesus, thank you for everything. You are the head of the church. Thank you so much for working through human agent. You're the light of the world, but you have certain luminaries who lead. That's, that's the way it is. Perish the thought that we would cling to a luminary the way we cling to you. I don't even think the luminary would like that. That's an undue dependence on a mere mortal rather than on you. You are immortal. Thank you, O oh God, that the work of redemption, the work of the church, goes on because you're the head of the church and you are an eternal being. Thank you, Lord Jesus, though men, women come and go, hopefully making a marvelous contribution. You always have somebody being prepared as a successor for great leaders who have gone before. And I take it these other giant killers built on the foundation of David. There's none like he. And to denigrate David's foundation would be really poor judgment. Great foundation. But others can build upon it. Well, God in heaven, thank you. This is your way throughout Scripture and throughout history. We thank you that your ways are good, acceptable, and perfect. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, folks. Please make note of the fact. Look how early we're getting out. Walk.